Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. We're going to conclude the series today called Three Beautiful Words. Now, I don't know about you, but three-week series, they go real fast, right? We've had, this is week number three. Next week is going to be kind of a one-off message before we start into the month of December. If you have a Bible, I want to ask you to open up with me to Genesis 35. So the book of beginnings, this is the first book of the Bible, of course, right? The Torah, what we call the Pentateuch, and this is Moses is the author. In Genesis chapter 35, we're going to hop around this morning in a not-so-sequential way and order, okay? And as we're finishing this series this weekend, Three Beautiful Words, I want to talk today about something that's very significant in Scripture, and that is God's ability to change people's name. Now, again, if you're the person that's sequential and you love all the sequence, you're just going to have to stick with me this morning. I actually had something happen to me that hasn't happened in 20 years of preaching, and that is I find myself ready to come to church, and my keys are in my wife's car, who is in the parking lot at church, who's on stage with no phone. And so I'm door knocking through my neighborhood just a little bit ago, trying to find a neighbor and got a neighbor to bring me to church this morning. So that was the first, first time I've done that in 20 years. So um, you're going to have to bear with me. That wasn't too sequential, okay? So let's talk for a few moments about a name change. Now, the reason I, I talk about a name change is because when you study Scripture, you see again and again and again, God changes a human's name, changes their name. For many of us in this room, we need to kind of detox from some of the lies that we have believed. We need to, if I can challenge us, process through maybe for even the next week, process through some of the lies that we have believed that are called labels. And so we're going to talk about labels. Now, this message this morning is on Jacob, okay? But there are many people who had a name change. It starts with Abram becoming Abraham. God takes two letters of his name, Yahweh, and he adds them to Abram. So Abram's real name is Abramham. Abramham. This is how God identifies. You have Sarai to Sarah. You go all the way to the New Testament, you have Simon Reed to Peter, Petros the rock. You have Saul the large to Paul the little. Our God, throughout the context and the narrative of Scripture, appears to be a name changer. So today I want to teach you about labels. Today's title is I Am Forgiven. That is three beautiful words. I Am Forgiven. Anybody ever had someone come into your life and try to stick a label on you that you didn't want stuck on you? You know, when you're in grade school and this happens, elementary school, you're on the playground and somebody comes and sticks a label on you and you give them that good quintessential phrase, what did you just call me? Like, what did you just call me? I don't answer by that. Like they gave you a label that you don't like. Here's one of the things I've learned, church. A lot of people are better in the sixth grade at rejecting labels than they are at 60. I actually think kids are better at rejecting labels often than adults are at rejecting labels. 
So why, Craig, must we talk about this in the church? Well, here's the reason. You ready? Probably more than half of the people in this room are living according to a label that God disagrees with. Living according to some statement, some belief, which is a lie, that the God of the universe vehemently opposes. And if you're living down to, listen to me, because we don't live up to an ungodly label. You have to live down to it. We live up to a godly name. We live down to an ungodly label. And when you're living down to or according to an ungodly label, you might think that it doesn't affect the rest of your life, but I'm here to tell you it always does. It always penetrates. Because you got to remember this about yourself. You are complicated. I am complicated. Meaning there is no one label that can describe you in your entirety. Some of you might not even like this. It ruffles your feather. But even on the good side, even a good label does not describe you in entirety. Not even the label child of God. That's a godly label. I like it. We need to use it. But if, if it, it never, child of God, doesn't describe me in my entirety. Because I know lots of people with the label child of God who are totally different. They look totally different, act totally different. You are, in essence, too complicated to be boiled down to one label or one description. So today, I've got four points in this message. Point number one is a question. Here it is. What are labels and why are labels so dangerous? What are labels and why are labels so dangerous? Here is my definition of a label. You ready? A label is an adjective given to you by either someone you love or a number of someones in your life which they use to describe you, but God would never say about you. That's what a label is. A label is an adjective given to you either by someone you love or a number of someones in your life which they use to describe you, but God would never use to describe you. Now, let's juxtapose labels with name. Let's contrast a label with a name. Here's my definition of a name. A name is an identifier. Do you hear the root word, the etymology, identity? A name is an identifier someone puts on you when they've heard from your heavenly father. That's the difference. So a label is put on you by someone you love or someones you love that God would never use, but a name is an identifier that someone puts on you when they've heard rightly from your heavenly Father. Listen, labels are the opinion of man. Names come from the mouth of God. That's their juxtaposition. This is why God, throughout narrative of Scripture, has to do what? He has to change people's names. He has to change their identity. He has to give them something greater to live for. Now, Genesis 35, verse 16 this is one of Jacob's sons. This is, in my opinion, I'm going to humbly submit it to you, is one of the ugliest moments of labeling, especially in a family, in all of the entirety of Scripture. I want you to hear this verse and then understand the power of a label. Genesis 35, 16. Notice what the text says. Then they moved on from Bethel, the place of God. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel, the mother, began to give birth and had great difficulty literally means she was severely in pain. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, severe pain, that's the translation. Ladies, she is going through a, a very, very scary delivery of this baby boy. A really, really crazy kind of moment. 
as she was in this great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't despair for you have another son. Okay, now watch this. We read scriptures like this and we think that's all they are, stories. They're just stories. No, no, no. Ladies, I want you for a moment to put yourself in her shoes. Men, I won't ask you to do that because that could get weird in the 21st century. Okay? So you are putting yourself in the shoes of this woman who is in a very dire situation, very scary moments. So finally it hits her. She realizes for me to give birth to a life will cost me my life. Somewhere along the childbirthing process, that hits her. Labor communicates to her, I'm dying, but he's going to live. This child will make it. I won't make it. Verse 18, and as she breathed her last, think about all the things you could do in your last breath. Think about all the moments, all the statements, all the things that could come from your mouth. As she breathed her last, notice this, for she was dying, she named her son Benoni. Benoni. But his father named him Benjamin. She looks at the baby, her second son. Now, her first son was Joseph. We know this, okay? Her last breath, she looks at the baby boy and she curses the baby boy. Here's my paraphrase. You've cost me my life. You're going to now be named son of my sorrow, Benoni. Son of my sorrow. I don't care what other people think about you. I don't care what the next 60 years of your life, what role you play in their life. What you are defined by and what you will be called by is the son of my sorrow. You're the son of my pain. Then she dies. I bet some of you right now, you're already thinking of moments in your past where someone in your family, someone you love, stuck a label on you. Now I want you to think for a moment about being the baby. He hasn't even opened his mouth yet. He's not even, other than crying, he's not even engaged the world He's not even had his first meal yet, and somebody is already sticking upon him, someone that loves him, supposed to care for him, a label in this moment. Now, this story, it's amazing if you follow it through. It becomes something really redemptive. But I'm going to tell you, this right now is the ugly setup of ungodly labeling. And you got to understand something. Are ready? Lean in with me. Usually when people attach a label to you, They attach their emotions to your label. So this wasn't just a phrase Rachel's giving. This isn't a phrase Rachel's speaking out. It's a very hard delivery. The midwife, the Bible says, screams. My question is, why is she screaming? Can I propose to you why I think she's screaming? Because Rachel's screaming. So she's picking up on the cues, and she's now hearing Rachel scream. And when Rachel utters her last words... Her emotions are now attached, emotions of sorrow, to the labels she gives her son. Some of you, you have certain labels in your life that have stuck for you, to you for years. And you have racked your brain trying to figure out why they're more powerful than a name. And you've never been able to figure out why. Here is why. Listen to me. Somebody didn't just stick a label on you. They attached their emotion to you. That's why you feel that weightiness of their emotion. That's why it's not even the words that you keep rehearsing that do all the weirdness inside. It's the emotion you felt from the person when the tonality of 
of that voice spoke to you those words. And so now that word has become a vehicle, that label has become a vehicle that carries with it an attitude and an emotion, a dysfunctional emotion of the very person you loved that should actually be calling you by a name, not a label. So next slide, let me share you this. The weight of your label is usually measured by the depth of your love for that person and the strength of their emotion towards you. That's where the weightiness of that label comes from. And so for decades of my life, I can live with this weightiness in my heart and my soul because of the depth of, depth of my love for the person who spoke the label. Let me give you a few examples of this. Now, I want you to follow me for a moment. I'm going to give you parental ones. And the reason I'm going to give you parental ones is because they're easiest for us to understand. All right? Here's how easy it is to slap a label on a child as a parent. You know, our last child, the youngest one, man, that, that child, our last one was a total surprise. That's a label. A tone that says, we did not ask for this last child. Now, now listen, we chuckle at that. I hear people chuckle at that all the time. <laughs> yeah, we didn't ask. That was a surprise. But you don't chuckle if you're the baby. You don't chuckle if you're the child. Because if you're a child and you hear your parents say that to some other parents, what you now accept as the label is mom said, I never asked God for this baby. I'm too old to do this again. I never desired this. Here's what that baby feels. You didn't, you didn't want me? Well, how does that affect your love for me? Is what your word saying to me true of your heart for me? Because what you're saying to me is different from what you told others. We didn't want that child. We didn't ask for that child. That's a label. What about this one? Man, our middle child is the difficult one. You're getting smarter. You're not laughing now. That's a label. We might laugh unless we're the middle child. And the middle child says, man, one season of my life as a young boy got me labeled the most difficult of my brothers and sisters just for that one little stretch of my life. What about this one? Man, our oldest child, he just has to learn the hard way. Do you see how easy this is? We are pre-programmed in our sin nature to destroy people's futures through our words. We are pre-programmed to do this. To slap labels on people we claim to love. And we act like we can just say things without any consequence. But here's the problem. Watch this. When you put a label on someone, you have the power in labeling them to change their life. And I also want to argue on the converse. That if your name is changed and your identity is changed in Christ, then you also have the power to change a name. You can prophetically speak over someone and prophetically speak over their life, their present, their future, their destiny. But on the flip side of that coin is you can actually speak a curse over them too. So scripture's clear. Watch this. Ephesians says, in your anger, do not sin. Parents, what is one of the worst sins we can commit in our anger? I'm going to propose to you what I think is the most destructive thing we can do as parents over children. My opinion of the most destructive thing we can do for our kids is calling your child something their heavenly father would never call them. And especially doing it in a moment of anger. That's one of the worst sins a parent can commit in their anger. Why? Because a label is a curse. 
A label is a curse over that life. And Rachel is dying and cursing her son. She wasn't just naming him, she was cursing him. Watch this, church. A label is a curse and a name is a blessing. Let me say it this way. Next slide. The fastest way to devalue someone is to give them a label. That's the quickest way to devalue an individual. Give them a label. Now, let's talk for a few moments about the danger. What is so dangerous about labels? The second part of that question. First, Satan wants the labels on you to serve as the ceilings over you. That's the first thing. Satan wants the labels on you to serve as ceilings over you. Think about it. A label like this. Man, you are terrible with money. So what Satan wants to do is he wants that label to stick to you. So what? You will mentally and emotionally see it as a ceiling. So you will never actually be able to reflect your father's generous nature and become a giver like God intended you to be. So every label Satan tries to put on you, his desire is for it to serve as a ceiling over you. He wants to cause it to prevent you from rising. This is why you should get ticked off every time someone tries to put a label on you. You should get mad about it. Again, what's an ungodly label? Any label, any description, any statement that God would vehemently disagree with, that's called a label. And if it upsets him, it should upset you. Yet what do many of us do? Especially if it comes from someone we love, someone we trust. We don't just hear it. What do we do? We believe it, and then it becomes our ceiling. Okay, labels are lies about you, which Satan wants you to believe are the truth about you. Okay, we have this next slide. A label you receive is a lie you believe. A label you receive is a lie you believe. Meaning, another way to say it, Satan wants his lies about you to be adopted by you as your perspective of you. That's his intent. I don't know, church, how many times, hours, we're in the thousands. I have spent ministering to folks in 20 years, to people in counseling type moments, just trying to help them understand the thought process that they have based on what they're telling me originates from the belief that a lie is actually the truth. And they spend their whole life operating out of a lie, out of a lying system. If I were your enemy, I would lie about you too. You know why? Because it confuses you. And it brings about confusion. So, let me do something. I'm going to pause a moment. And I'm going to do something new. What about this for a growth mindset? I'm going to pause the message and I'm going to introduce to you, voila, lead talks with the Craigs moment, just for a moment. So I'm going to stop the message and I'm going to apply everything I've said so far in four to five minutes just to leaders. Then we're going to jump right back in the message. You say, Craig, why are you doing this? Because we're putting a lot of effort and engagement into to helping build leaders within this body. And so as a podcast, as we've launched this podcast, I want to make it real imperative and real important about how we can take the things we're hearing and apply it to our leadership, our influence over other people. Okay, so since the first point I just gave you was a question, I'm going to ask this lead talk moment with a question. Here it is. What's so dangerous 
about a leader living by a label. All right, let me get straight to it. A leader living by a label is too distracted by man to be focused on God. So, So let me just talk for a moment about the two types of destructive labels that we face. The first one's wrong label. The second one's bad labels. Let's talk about wrong label. A wrong label is a good label that you strive too hard to live up to. So let me give you an example of this. You grow up in a family where your parents aren't athletic, not at all, but you are very athletic, and so they tried out for all of their sports teams, and they were cut. They didn't make it. So without realizing it, you're only five years old. Without realizing it, they attached some significance to being cut from those teams. And so without you even realizing it, you grew up as a five-year-old, and you kept hearing from the stands, and then you would hear after the games. They would set you down and look at you in the face and say, hey, you, you need to understand, you are the best athlete in our family, our family has ever had. So you hear this label. And I have what you interpret as I have to be a top athlete. Well, you internalize it at five years old, and you think in the way you internalize it is they love me because I'm an athlete. Now, when a parent says that to us, this becomes the child who is 16 years old as a sophomore in high school who is constantly looking up in the stands at his basketball game to get the same approval and affirmation from the very parent who told him five years old, you're the best athlete in our family. Almost as if the little boy or the little girl is saying, am I doing it now, mom? Am I doing it now, dad? Do you still love me? Is this good enough for you? What? That a, a wrong label is a good thing that you're trying to live up to too much. So, so watch this scripture. You ready? Jeremiah 17, 5 and 6. This is what it says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength, watch this, and turn their hearts away from the Lord, comma, they are like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. If we apply this principally to a wrong label, that means if I have accepted a wrong label, it will actually stunt my growth when I look to man for my identity more than I look to God for my identity. That's a wrong label. But here's the second type of label. a bad. This is all under leadership. A bad label. What is a bad label? A bad label is a bad thing you're trying too hard to prove you're not. So have you ever had someone say to you that you love, man, why can't you be as smart as your sister? Why can't you be as smart as your brother? So the label you hear, especially if you're young, you hear is you are dumb. You are, you are not intelligent. And then what happens? You try to live your life trying to defeat a bad label. So the little girl grows up and she goes off to school and she tries to do four earned doctorates doctorates just so she can what? Seem smarter than her sister. You see how dangerous wrong labels? You see how dangerous bad labels can be? Here's the problem with wrong labels and bad labels. Both of them, they look too much to man. Watch this, church. It is impossible to be a godly leader by looking to man as much as you look to God. You cannot be a godly leader. Galatians 1.10, Paul said this, Am I now trying to win the approval of man or win the approval of God? Then he says this, If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. A godly leader 
cannot please the flesh of man and the Spirit of God simultaneously. One's going to have to be displeased. What does that mean? This is why a godly leader trying to live from a label from man can be so destructive. Because here's the deal. You ready? We face whatever voice we listen to the most. So if I'm listening to the voice of man, I will, by nature, turn my back on God. You always face what you listen to most frequently. And a leader living with a label from man needs the affirmation of man because their focus is on man. But a leader living according to God's identity must not carry the labels of man. That concludes our Lead Talks moment. Let's go to point number two. Labels come early and often in life. Labels come early and often in life. Genesis 25. Now, we were in Genesis 35. Go back 10 chapters, okay? I told you we wouldn't be sequential. Now we're going to Jacob's birth. In Jacob's birth, I want you to see very intriguing birth. Very intriguing birth. Again, jumping out of sequence just for a moment. Look at me in verse 24. Genesis chapter 25. Start with me in verse 24. When the time came for her to give birth, mother to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. Watch this. This is so fascinating. The first to come out of the womb was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So, what? Meaning, in light of the information we've shared, they named him Esau. Baby number one is fuzzball. He's got red hair. So they named him Esau. I would submit to you they actually didn't name him. I would submit to you that they labeled him. Why? Because Esau means hairy, not H-A-R-R-Y like dumb and dumber, but like H-A-I-R-Y, hairy, fuzzball. Esau means hairy. It's like a, like a, more like a nickname. Hey, fuzzball. And they called him this his whole life. Look at the next verse. So verse 26, after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So, so means in light of the information I just shared, he was named Yaakov. Yaakov is Jacob. He was named Yaakov, and Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So watch this. Baby comes out head first. He's not breached. He's doing like he's supposed to do. Here he comes. He comes out head first. He's hairy. They call him Harry. They call him Esau. And the second one, instead of his head popping out first, his arm comes out first. Ladies, think about this. And he's grasping the heel, right? Craziness, right? Crazy. The doctor in me wants to see this, okay? Holding the heel of the first child before his head even comes out, and they named him Yaakov, which literally means heel grabber. Now, unfortunately, Yaakov or Jacob also means cheater, supplanter, or deceiver. They labeled him this at birth, and unfortunately, for the first part of his life, he lived down to this label. Now, I'm going to read to you verses 19 through 23, but before I do, I want you to see. Are you ready? Next slide. Labels are based on what man sees and thinks. Names are founded upon what God knows and says. Labels come from what people around us see and what people around us think about what they see. Names are different. They come from what God knows and what God actually says. Now, let me show it to you. Verse 19. 
Powerful. Verse 19, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padam Aram, sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. Now watch this. The babies jostled each other within her, the wrestling. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Pause. Back real quick. I'm going to give you a genius backslide. A genius life hack right here. You ready? Powerful life hack. She has a question about something that's going on inside of her body. And what is her first thought? Her first thought is, I'm going to inquire of the Lord who created me. Now listen to me. Something's going on in her. And her first instinct wasn't to inquire and pick up the phone and call my counselor. Now, I'm all for godly counsel, but you need to understand the narrative of Scripture. I'm all for That's a part of the process. Notice her first instinct wasn't to pick up a phone and call a godly mentor. Calling a godly mentor might be a part of the process, but her first move, her instinct as a follower of God was, I'm going to inquire of the one who created me. If there's something going on inside me, I'm going to ask the one who created me. And what does God say? Next slide. This is what the Lord says. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within your womb will be separated. One will be stronger than the other. Time out. God did not say one will be weak. He said one's going to be stronger. I don't know how many messages I've heard that implies God said something he didn't say. It's not what God said. He didn't say one's going to be weak. He said they're both going to be real strong. Real strong. Headstrong. They're going to fight. Now watch what he says. The older... This is God. This is God speaking because she inquired of God. God said before they are born, the older is actually going to serve the younger. This is upside down, God is saying. God's speaking about these two baby boys while they're in utero before she gives birth to them. And what did we just read in the chapter after? How does she describe them? How does she name them? She names them based off of what she can see and what she thinks about what she sees. She calls them Esau, red, furry, fuzzball, and she calls them Jacob, heel grabber. God had spoken to her. He had clearly made it near to her. He had spoken to her about the strength of these boys and these children. And in my opinion, had she named them according to what God said and not about what she saw, but what God said and what God's word declared over them, not what she saw or what she thought about what she saw, they would have never gotten labels like they did. So I want to ask you humbly and sweetly a question. Have you ever been wrong in your life before? I've been wrong three times since I started this sermon. You've been wrong five times since you woke up this morning. So help me understand something, church. Why the strategy of doing anything based off of what I can see? Remember, how does faith come? Faith does not come by seeing. Faith comes by hearing. One of the biggest mistakes we make as followers of Jesus Christ is to begin to make our decisions based off of what we can see and what we think rather than off of what God knows and what God says. Labels come off of what God not, not what God knows, but what we see, right? Labels don't come off of what God says, but what we think about what we see. This is the difference between labels and names. Now, if you're in Genesis 25, I want you to flip over two chapters to Genesis 27. And I'm going to read you one verse, and I'm going to teach on it real quickly, the two biggest lies that come with labels. And you're going to get both lies in one verse. These are the two lies that come with receiving a label. Here it is. Don't read it yet. I'm going to catch you up to where we are. 
Remember the prophetic word God gives. Remember God spoke to the mom. This word God speaks over the boys. The younger is going to be more powerful than the older. Okay, that's upside down in their culture. The oldest would have a blessing. The rest didn't have. But God says, no, it's going to be upside down. Well, we see Yaakov and his mother pull some strings in order to steal the firstborn's birthright and blessing. And this is what has transpired right before what we're about to read. Now, Esau now sees that he's lost the blessing of the firstborn. Now, remember, he had already traded the birthright for the firstborn for some soup. Homie, that soup better have been life-changing. Better be like my wife's potato soup in the crock pot. Anything outside of that? This is why God said when they're in the womb, the younger is more powerful because the oldest Esau, you need to understand this, the oldest Esau, he viewed his birthright and his blessing of the firstborn with contempt. He did not see it the way God did. And because he didn't see it the way God did, he couldn't steward it the way God would ask. You can never steward what you don't see. And because he couldn't see what God thought about it, he couldn't steward the way God wanted him to steward. So it was given to his younger brother, Yaakov. And watch how Esau responds to losing the birthright or the blessing after he's lost the birthright. Watch this. Esau exclaims, screams, literally is the text. No wonder his name is Yaakov, deceiver, for he's now cheated me twice. Okay, so notice, he doesn't just call him the label. He points to facts and behaviors. Watch what he says next. First, he took my rights as the firstborn, and now he's stolen my blessing. All right, two things you see here. Esau points to the little liar's behavior attached to the label of deceiver. This deceiver tricked me, a little trickster. But then the second thing he does is he shows the label that he believed he had. And what do you think that was? Victim. He stole my birthright. Wrong. Don't revise history. Esau, you are lying. Don't lie, especially don't lie to God. He didn't steal your birthright. You traded your birthright. You had a deer a couple years ago. You remember when you bring him in the house and you said, I, I'm famished and I got to give it up? You didn't, he didn't steal it from you. You gave it. You see how we revise history once we feel victims? You see what happens when we get victimized? See how we start changing our narrative? He stole my birthright. No, he did not steal your birthright, Esau. You traded your birthright. And now he says he's stolen my blessing too. Now, yeah, I can agree with you there. He definitely tricked you to get that one. But you can hear Esau saying, I've been victimized. So this one verse shows us the two lies associated with labels. Here's lie number one. What you did is who you are. What you did is who you are. That's lie number one. This is a lie. What you did is who you are. Listen to me. Books are what we read to learn a lesson, but mistakes are often how we learn the most important lessons. See, the reason some of us think that <clears throat> what we've done is who we are is because we don't understand educational mistakes in the eyes of God. So here's what we think. We think mistakes are bad, and because mistakes are bad, that for means when I make mistakes, I'm bad because mistakes are bad. Anybody ever seen the movie Meet the Robinsons? What a beautiful, genius lessons in that movie, right? Such a powerful lesson. You remember in the story, he, made, he mistakes the peanut butter and the invention. And if you've seen the movie, I'm sorry, but go watch it. This fantastic peanut butter and jelly goes all over the house. And the little boy thought he had fixed the invention, but he didn't. He made it mess up and go everywhere. And everybody in the house starts celebrating. 
they start screaming and clapping their hands. You failed. You failed. I see some of you clapping your hands out here. You failed. Great mistake. And they're like cheering him on. It is genius as a move, but it's completely counterintuitive to what we actually believe ourselves. We think mistakes are bad, and since mistakes are bad, if I make a mistake, therefore I'm bad. Can I propose to you this morning? I don't think that's how God sees mistakes. You remember when you were in school and you had that teacher that you would bomb a test? The teacher would allow you to retake the test for partial credit. None of y'all had a teacher like that? Your childhood was terrible. (laughs) Don't accept that label. Your child was amazing. You had that teacher let let you what? Retake the test, right? But listen to me. God is a father. He's actually a teacher. But he is the teacher who doesn't just administrate tests to us. He loves to actually take the test with us. And when we bomb them, it's his grace and mercy that I believe comes to us and says, would you like to retake that test? Can I tell you what the Lord has said to me on multiplied hundreds of times? Craig, you want, you want that 43 right there on your GPA? No, Lord, I, I don't. I would like, I would, I, no. Would you like to retake that test? Yes, Lord, I would. I retake it. This time I get a 71. He'll come to me, Craig. Would you like this 71 to be on your GPA? No, Lord, I'm I'm sorry. I really don't want the 71. Okay, would you like to retake it? Yes, okay, before you retake it, let me teach you a couple more things, okay? Now go retake the test this time. I get an 87. Craig, is this the grade that you would like on your GPA, an 87? No, Lord, would you like to retake the test this time? Yes, yes, Lord, I would really like you. Okay, well, hold on just a minute. Let me teach you a couple more things, and now go retake the test. This is how my whole marriage has gone. You know how many times I've had to retake a test in my marriage or retake a test in my parenting? Listen to me, church. The goal isn't perfection. The goal is constant progress. Keep growing. You can't convince me that you can live your life without making mistakes. I make them every day. And if you convince yourself you don't, listen, the only way to never make mistakes is to never show up for the examinations. So if you never show up for a test, I get it. You won't make a mistake, but you also won't make an impact. It's the only way. It's the only way. Listen to me. God is the kind of father who says, hey, you want to retake the test? I'm gracious, and I've given my book to you. Would you like to make this an open book test? Yes, Lord. I want the open book test. The open book test, the Bible is like the best calculator you've ever had. Y'all remember in math when you got to use the scientific calculator? You know, the one that graphs the Y equals MX plus B, and you could hide the answers on the underside of it? Teachers, I don't know if you knew that. Because it has the thing that slides on the back. Called a kid in my class this week in the midst of a scripture memorization looking down between their legs as if I didn't know that trick. Like, is it under your seat? Do I bearish you in front of everybody, or do I let, wait until it happens at the end? Like, what happens, right? But, but, but God's like, do you want an open book test? That's the Bible. It's the best. Ca- Here, here's what you have to remember. You ready? Next slide. The godly aren't defined by their mistakes. The godly are known for their response to their mistakes and defined by their God's response to their mistakes. That's the godly. Well, Craig, what is God's response to my mistakes? As a son of God, what are God's responses to my mistakes? Craig, would you like to be forgiven of this? Yes, Lord, you know I would. I don't want to be defined by this. Okay. No, Lord, I, I don't want to be defined by this at all, God. I, I want to be forgiven of this. I don't, want to be, I don't want this held against me for my life, let alone eternity. So God looks at me and says, okay, you're forgiven now. Let's learn something. 
Let's talk about what you can learn, Craig, because listen to me, you're going to have to take this test, retake this test many, many times in your life. Okay, Lord. Watch this, church. Proverbs 24, 16. Watch this. The godly may trip seven times, but they'll get back up again. Next slide. The godly may trip seven times, but they'll get back up again. This is the response the sons and daughters of God must be known for. We cannot, listen, come across as perfectionists because then we push away anybody who's aware of the fact they make mistakes. So we as Christians can't come off like we're perfectionists. Like what good is the gospel if you're perfect? We should actually embrace. Now this is not an excuse to sin. Don't take my words out of context. But we as the church should embrace a culture of mistakes. If you think the church is meant to be a place of perfection, what are you going to do with Proverbs 14.4? Proverbs 14.4, one of my favorite leadership verses in all the Bible. And this is what Proverbs 14.4 says. Without oxen, a stable stays clean. What? Here's my paraphrase. You go look it up in your own translation. But the only way to an experience an abundant harvest is with oxen. You know what that means? People are messy. That's why we need the Messiah. Messiah. That's why we need the Messiah. You're messy, and I'm messy. I'm a man in progress, so don't label me off of what base what you see. You're just catching me in a season. You know how many people get labeled for a temporary season? They get a long-term label. Oh, that person is struggling. Maybe it's just a six-month season, and you're going to give them a lifetime label for six months of struggle? What's that like? Let me tell you what that's like. That's calling someone based off of what you see and what you think, not based off of what God knows and what God says. Now, here's the other half of that coin. You ready? Psalm 37, verse 23 and 24. Watch this. The text says, The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their life. Watch this. Though they stumble, they'll never fall, for the Lord himself holds them by the hand. Notice it doesn't say when they stumble, he slaps them and spanks them. That's not what it says. Oh yeah, I'm disciplined because I'm a legitimate son, but he catches me every single time I trip. Again, not an excuse to intentionally trip, but if I'm righteous, that means I get back up time and time again. And here is the second lie. Listen to me. The first lie Satan wants us to believe is, right, you are ultimately, that, that made your mistake. Here's lie number two Satan wants you to believe as it relates to your label. You are, number two, what was done to you. You are what was done to you. Now, I want to be very careful with this one, but from time to time, I get the opportunity, I call it the blessed opportunity, to spend time with some people who've had some really bad things happen to them as kids. Horrific things. Early on in life. And I don't want to speak specifically to those things because I don't want to re-traumatize people and reintroduce trauma. But I want you, I want you to, to, to see something. If something ungodly was done to you early on, I, I don't want... I love you too much to push far from that point of pain. So I'm not trying to re-traumatize you. I'm actually trying to bring light into a dark place that the enemy has not just tried to occupy for years of your life. He's tried to own it. He's tried to maintain that territory. So, so let me just kind of push back or let me shine some light if I can for a moment. 
with all of my heart, I believe today God wants, wants to do some liberating from ungodly labels. Especially those who have bought the lie that I am what was done to me. What was done to me is who I am, Pastor Craig. And if that's the lie Satan has convinced you to believe is the truth, I want to remind you, that's not you. It's what was done to you. Now, I don't want to minimize it, okay? And the illustration I'm about to give you, please hear my heart. I'm not trying to compare. I'm just trying to show you that when I spend time with people like this, where something's done to them as a child, especially that God despises, I start hearing them use phrases like this. Well, this is always going to be a part of who I am. I want to push back on that for a moment. I don't try to argue with people when they say that to me. What I try to do is I try to lovingly shine the light on a darkened perspective. I understand that feels to be true to you, but I don't believe that is to be true. And so I try to tell them a story like one of the worst losses I've ever experienced. So playing basketball... My senior year of high school, I had a terrible coach. Terrible coach. And that's not a label. That's a statement of fact, I think, of which she would agree. Bad. And destroyed, destroyed our high school career. I mean, literally four years destroyed our career. There was a lot of craziness going on. But we get to the playoffs, and we never should have lost. But we are literally, and I'm, not a, non, I'm a non-quitter. I'm a finish it to the end. But it was a bad, bad experience where she started benching all of the seniors to get ready for next season, has already ripped from them their whole high school career, and then through the season just starts benching them, even though they're the starters, just to say we're going to get extra minutes and reps for future years. Well, I remember, truth be told, I was part of the reason in some sense this night that I got really, really mad. But I have played up to this point hundreds. I, I have played hundreds of basketball games in my career. What would it be like if after 18 years later, I'm describing myself off of one game from a career that I've not been in in 18 years? What if you came up to me in church one day and you didn't know I was the pastor of the church and you said, hi, what's your name? And my response was, hey, I'm loser. Loser? Like that's your name? Well, it's just a label, but it's a label I believe so strongly, so I call it my name. My name's loser. Why, why is your name loser? Well, see, thing is, I was a pretty decent uh, basketball player in high school. Uh, in the last game of my career, we should have won, but I wasn't quite good enough, and, and we lost. And therefore, since we lost, I am a loser. Now, please hear my heart. I'm not trying to trivially compare a silly game to an abusive moment in someone's past, but I am trying to push back by the power of the Spirit that the enemy who is behind you whispering into your ear, what was done to you is you, is not how God talks. It's not how God speaks. You're not a loser. You're not an abuse victim. Yes, you were victimized, but please don't believe the lie that that's who you are. And that's who you're going to die being. And it's always going to be a part of your story. And it's always going to... No, no. Jesus came to set the captive free and to heal the brokenhearted. So that what? You don't have to buy the lie. Listen, I get it. It was gross. And I'm sorry it happened. I get it's disgusting. And I get that there's so much shame attached to it. It is not even a decision you made. It's a decision somebody made being 
being led by God's enemy to victimize you. Please understand me this morning. I'm not trying to make light of what you experience. I'm trying to make light that this isn't you. It was just one stop along the way to where you are today. Just like that loss in my high school career is not me. It's just one step in the journey. It's not my identity. It's just a moment in my history. And if you have been a person that's been victimized, it's not your identity. It's just a moment in your story. And let me say this. Listen, if we talk about labels, if you believe the lie that what was done to me is me, here's what I need you to understand. This is what you're thinking like, and you got to understand this. This is what you're actually doing. The person who did that to you, if you give them the ability to label you, you are giving them power over you every day of your life. If what they said to you still has the ability to identify you and capture you, you are granting power to them. Now let me take a pause. And let me reintroduce Lead Talks moment number two. What do you mean, Lead Talks moment number two? Well, let's just apply this just for a moment. If you think about this, leaders must understand Satan's strategy for counterfeiting. Okay, I want to define for a moment counterfeit. Okay, I'm going to read you the definition. It means to imitate something authentic with the intent to steal, destroy, or replace the original for use in illegal transactions or otherwise to deceive individuals into believing that the fake is of equal or greater value than the real thing. Now, this is a really powerful lesson that I learned years ago. Satan is the counterfeiter. What does that mean? He does not have the ability to create anything because God is the creator. So now watch this. Satan, think about my leadership. Satan, since he can't create, he can only counterfeit, he can take something real and he turns it so we look at it differently, almost as though it were fake. And his goal is to destroy the very thing we're looking at, especially when we're talking about what God created us to be. So let me talk about Satan for a moment. I don't want to give him too much credit, but I want to expose something, okay? Let me talk about Satan. Scripture helps us understand what kind of a counterfeiter Satan is. Okay, so John 8, 44, powerful passage out of the mouth of Jesus. He says, Satan has always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, it is, Jesus, when he lies, it is consistent with his character for he is a liar and the father of all lies. What is Jesus helping us understand? Jesus is the truth. What's the opposite of truth? A lie. Jesus says that you need to understand he's the opposite of truth. Remember, the Antichrist is known for two things. Antichrist has two descriptors. Being the opposite of Christ, but also being an imitator of Christ. So watch this. He tries to do miracles, wonders, signs, but Scripture says they're fake, false wonders. But he, so, so he does the opposite of Jesus, but then he tries to imitate or look enough like Jesus to confuse people into buying his truth, which is the opposite of truth, which makes everything he does or says a lie. Watch this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Why would Satan disguise himself as an angel of light? Because there's nothing but darkness in him. And his kingdom is that of darkness with zero light. Here's how I want us to apply this to us. Are you ready? Whatever Satan tries to convince you that you are is the exact opposite of what God created you to be. Whatever Satan tries to convince you you are gives you a clear sign that the opposite of that is what God intends. Now, I want you to let that sink in for a moment because here's why he does this. And I didn't know this early on in ministry. 
He's trying to disqualify you from the call of God on your life. What do you mean, Craig? One of his favorite ways to do that is to come at us with the opposite of what we're called to be. So let me, let me, let me illustrate this, but I'm going to be a little bit, little bit sensitive because I know these involve sensitive things. I've had the opportunity the last 20 years of my life to work with some pastors who are younger than me. Younger pastors who early on in their lives were sexually abused. And this act, or it's normally acts done against them, created some identity struggles, some pretty big lies that they began to believe. And the more I started to work with them and people who have been through this, the more I started to really feel like the Holy Spirit was helping me understand what was not just happening for them, but how Satan loves to come at every single one of us. And I remember, I could take you to the chair, the first time I heard the Holy Spirit say these words through me to one of these great people. Powerful, powerful leader. And I heard the Holy Spirit speak through me. I said to him, the call of God on your life is clearly to die with a pure heart. And it appears to me, as I've watched you all through these years, that the call of God on your life is bigger than the gift you have. That everybody sees the call in your life is to die with a pure heart. And if I were your enemy, the way I would try and rob you of that pure heart would be causing dirty things to happen to you so that you would convince yourself you're dirty, you'll always be dirty, and then you'll stop trying to protect a pure heart. This is exactly how Satan works. He comes at you in the exact opposite direction of what God has called you to. So there's so many examples of this. Maybe the example for you is the enemy says to you, your label is you're lazy. You're lazy. Well, let me help you look at it a different way. Why don't you see in that moment that maybe he's trying to convince you you're lazy because your greatest calling on the kingdom of God is that you are an aggressive advancer for the kingdom of God in whatever field you're in. So his attack is going to be in the exact 180 degree opposite of what it is that God's called you to do. I've seen this a ton of times where people have a call of God on their life to help healing, to help heal hurting hearts. And their call is to be a bomb of Gilead for people. And here's what the enemy tries to do, disqualify them from that call. He tries to convince them that due to something that happened in their life, that they are broken and they're never able going to be fixed. You see what he's trying to do? You're broken. You can't fix broken people. And we have to, as the people of God, become more aware of the enemy's place and his playbook and realize, well, I don't want to give him a ton of credit, but wisdom says, let's learn his favorite place to call. And one of his favorite place to call is to try and disqualify us from the call of God in our life by what? The opposite thing that we're called to do. Let me give you another one. Maybe the labels enemy given you is you're terrible with money because the call of God in your life involves being a very generous giver. So whatever the label the enemy is trying to throw at you, he wants it to cause to stick to you. And I'm just telling you today, don't just reject it. Pay a little attention to what he's saying. And then investigate it with the Holy Spirit and all come to understand maybe the reason he keeps coming at me with this is because he's trying to disqualify me from the call. And that call involves the opposite of what he's coming with. Y'all, I want you to hear me something. Satan's not that hard to figure out. And when he, when he, we let him just do what he wants to do, he wreaks havoc in our lives. But when we begin to understand who we are in Christ and what God says about us, and the enemy's trying to shut all that off in the way which he most tries to do often, we can remove much of the power he tries to come at us simply by understanding it's not who I am. And then you can say to Satan, the reason you're trying to convince me that's who I am 
is because actually I'm called to be the opposite. Thank you for that insight. Here's the third point. Labels don't have to stick even if you deserve them. Grace, you can come up. This one's awesome for someone like me. If you've been to this church for any amount of time, you've probably heard me say that in my early years of life, I was, I was immoral. It was through exposure in my life, but I was an immoral human being. But if you've been coming to our church for a while, you probably picked up on that I have no problem talking about an old label. I actually don't keep it from anybody. You know why? Because over time, God has helped me learn this spiritual principle. You know what that is? There's a heavenly substance that removes the stickiness of earthly labels. And they'll fall off of you. You know what that heavenly substance is? The blood of Jesus. It is goo gone to the millionth degree. My running joke for years is call me whatever you want. Just, just, just so long as you call me. You know why? Because when I look in the mirror this morning, I don't see people's labels for me. I see the blood of Jesus. Call me whatever you want to call me. It's just so long you call me. Listen to me. If you get up this morning and you only see your beauty today, and only your beauty because you're on a hot streak in life, here's what I'm going to promise you. Listen, here's what I'm going to promise you will happen to you tomorrow. You'll only see blemishes. I don't want you to see beauty. I don't want you to see blemishes. I want you to see the blood. The foundation of my life is not my performance. The foundation of my life is not my, my behavior. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean I can behave however I want, but my identity isn't wrapped up in what I've done or what's been done to me. My identity, the foundation of my identity as a son of God is the purchase price that was paid for me by the blood of Jesus. So you can throw your labels at me, but I've learned the blood of Jesus removes all the earthly stickiness of ungodly labels. And fourth and finally today, I am forgiven. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to paint a picture for those of you in this room who might be living according to an ungodly ungodly label. And then I'm going to end. I am forgiven. But would you join me in my overly dramatic creative mind for a moment? I just kind of imagine that on the day of judgment, when I stand before God, just go with me. A little bit of a dramatic creative display. But I'm going to tell you, it's theologically accurate. Not theologically accurate in the picture, but it's, it's theological undergirding. Okay? I just wonder if on the day of judgment, if Satan doesn't try and set things up like this. It's a court of law, and you got the Father as the judge, and you got the Son of God as the defense attorney defending me, child of God. The prosecuting attorney, Satan himself, the DA. And on that day, my name is called Jonathan Craig Mosgrove, and I stand up. And just as quickly as I stand up, the prosecuting attorney, Satan, himself stands up holding a big sheet of paper like this. It just scrolls down to the floor. He's holding a sheet of paper and he says, Your Honor, the prosecution would like to submit exhibit A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, M, O, V, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z, double A, double B, double C, double D. And he does it all the way through the alphabet 27 times times 8. And he shows all of the body of work. And he says, this is the body of work, Jonathan Craig Mosgrove. And at the top of the page, in all caps, across my indictment, it says, immoral legend. 
Legend of Immorality. Your Honor, uh, time out. If I would like Your Honor to quote out of your very own book, The Rules for People Like Craig Mosgrove, Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. Unbelievers, cowards, the corrupt murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars. Their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Sulfur, your honor, you said that all the immoral, this is not just an immoral person, this is the immoral legend. This is a legend of immorality. Honor, we have a move right now to have Jonathan Craig Mosgrove immediately, post haste, thrown into the lake of fire based on your words. And here are the facts. Here are the facts. And as Satan, the prosecuting attorney, kind of pins his shoulders back like, yep, I made another great case. Right at that moment, man, this makes me emotional. My defense attorney stands up bust forth in the room. And you know what he says? Your Honor, since we're reading out of your book, I would like to read Colossians chapter 2 for the court today, which clearly communicates on historical record, just in case anyone knows, what I myself did for Jonathan Craig Mosgrove. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. I canceled, and listen, I canceled, and Your Honor, just in case anyone in this room, and I think at this moment Jesus might look over at the prosecuting attorney and say, just in case you don't know who the I is here, the I is me. I canceled the record of the charges against Jonathan Craig Mosgrove and I took them away by nailing them to the cross. And then I think he looks over at the prosecuting attorney again and says this next part in this way. I disarm the spiritual rulers and authorities trying to mess with him. I shamed you publicly and I took them away by nailing them on the cross. And I had victory over you on the cross. And your honor, I'd just like to remind you and all the court that that long list of facts that the prosecuting attorney is holding to condemn my client to condemn him to hell, I'd like it to be known that that sheet of facts was nailed beneath my feet and every drop of blood I spilled, I spilled on those pages. And your honor, what you're looking on that page, that's not words you're reading, that's my blood. Jonathan Craig Mosgrove is mine. He is mine. He is forgiven. And the prosecution might call him whatever he wants to call him. You might call him this and this and that and that. But your honor, I know according to your book what you're asking me. What do I call him I call him mine he is mine and I wonder if Jesus at that moment just looked over at me the kid said go on kid go on kid be free this is a forever kind of love God I I don't deserve like, like I did everything I thought I could do to disqualify myself like I was smart in my sinning Yeah, but the blood's better than your best attempt to try to end the love of God for you. You you can't end my love for you. Wow. I really am forgiven. Go free. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.